Hi, it's Delegate Mike McKay, District 1C, serving Allegheny and Washington counties. You're listening to my go-to source for news and insight on Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Mako's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm okay, Kevin. How are you? Doing really well. Today on the podcast, we'll talk school funding, the state's fiscal report card, and we'll close with what you should be listening to. Michael, the Kerwin Commission, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, a topic that we discuss a lot. Near and dear to our hearts. It is, but it's very, very important. And uh, <laughs> they have this uh, funding formula work group. We've covered this on the blog. We've talked a little bit about it on the podcast, but I want to get into this a little bit. They've held two meetings now, and we'll kind of go through what's happened so far. Right. So I think, I mean, as far as school funding goes, there's sort of two stories that are worth leading with. The, the first of them is really the, the today, and that is we're, we're just a few weeks into a new fiscal year. Right. We know that schools are coming back right after Labor Day, right? That's what mm. we do in Maryland, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's preparing and making their plans and staffing up and so forth. So the school system's money is flowing to the schools, and we know that part of this year's funding is a result of legislation passed earlier this year during the 19 legislative session. The blueprint bill. Yeah, so yep. the blueprint bill was sort of a couple years, let's get a running start on these ambitious plans. Mm-hmm. And some of the details have fallen together in these last couple weeks. Right. So first of all, a few updates on what's happening now. So Michael, we have talked extensively about the blueprint bill and, and most of that was state money. There was one carrot out there for counties, right? And that was a teacher salary incentive grant where if counties provided a, a raise for teachers, you would be eligible for some state money on top. Right. So if the world is divided into carrots and sticks in these sort of intergovernmental relationships right. where where we tend to be the borough, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, we'll take it. Okay, okay. so yeah, in this case, it was a carrot. Mm-hmm. And I think deliberately the legislature built this plan in hopes that the counties would go for it. So so we'll set the goal at something relatively reasonable. At one point, we heard in the breeze that maybe the incentive was going to be, we want you to fund 3% more right. than what the, the unions had negotiated back home. Which would have been a, a much bigger lift. Yeah, sure. a, a lot of places were saying, well, we're going to have, you know, I mean, they, they just negotiated a 3.5% raise. Right. Cost of living is only 1.5 or 2%. We've already done more than that. To do 3% on top of that, mm-hmm. we, we'd probably take a pass. We just can't can commit to that. Right. The idea of, all right, everybody do 3% or the equivalent thereof. If you're, if you do something other than an across the board, right. show us that it's the equivalent of a 3%. Make the effort. And then the state will show up with, I mean, this is, there's a pretty decent sized carrot, 75 million right. bucks. Absolutely. Intended to be, okay, go back to the negotiating table and sort out where this money goes. Nudge, nudge. Let's spend it on the new teachers, the ones who are early in their career, places we're having trouble keeping teachers around. Right. And that was a major focus of what the Kerwin Commission 
said in their in their report last year was that they're having trouble recruiting younger teachers. They want more teachers to come in instead of folks going out of the private sector after they graduate school. So targeting this money toward teachers with less than five years experience does make sense. But Michael, the good news is all 24 jurisdictions have applied for this grant. It looks right. like this is going to work out. The state put that carrot out there and it looks like it worked. All right. So it looks it looks like that's that's the outcome I think everybody wanted. So you know, if you represent the teachers, you're going to say, this is good. We got a wave. We got a first wave of investment and we got everybody on board. We're going to build some muscle memory that teachers come first. Right. Okay. That, 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 that's fine. So uh, I think we're going to see some jurisdictions where there's a differential now between the pay, you know, the, the funds that were made available for teachers mm-hmm. per se, as opposed to other employees within the school system. Right. Sometimes there might be two different bargaining units for the certificated teachers and the other staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then definitely there's a differential between the board of education and their funding for teachers compared to the rank and file employees in county government. That couldn't be more clear. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we don't see any counties providing this kind of increase for other employees outside of the board of education. So certainly it, it seems like this is now the state policy. Teachers come first and counties are having to get in line as well. Right. So, you know, so your, your, your folks who are answering the calls at the 911 center or who are plowing your streets and trying to fill potholes with whatever transportation money you can scrape together. Mm. Okay. You know, that's down the list because teachers are at the top of the list. They're going to eat first. And that's, I mean, Hey, this is, this is what political decision making is about. That's part of what Annapolis is saying. You put a, a carrot out for one crowd and they get it. Right. So. The carrot work there. Also, state money to fund some of these initial recommendations outside of that that teacher grant incentive. The money that the current commission set aside in the, the blueprint bill is starting to flow. So as of last week, we've seen more than $225 million has been awarded in grants by the State Department of Education. This is going to the local school boards. More right. than $250 million is expected to be released, and that's about 150 grants, Michael, for the 2019-20 school year. All right, so this is, this is jump-starting some of the initiatives that the Kerwin Commission has been focused on. They've got the long-term plans, and we know the effort is underway to try and finalize how, you know, how do you phase that stuff in right. and how do you pay for it? That's what's going on between now and later this fall. The legislation is sort of the beginning. So, you know, we know schools that have a really high share of students from poor families. Mm-hmm. We're going to start building the infrastructure in that school so that they can have a coordinator and some health resources right. to, to reach out to those kids because we know there's an outcome gap in those schools that have that problem. So, you know, it's, I mean, down payment, I think is the right phrase where some people are calling it, you know, the bridge to Kerwin. Okay, that's that's another political phrase we've heard like lots of times. Term. Yeah, however, you know, how, however you like to phrase these things, that's what we get this year. That's what we get next year. Also, the bill that passed had big bipartisan support. The governor showed up and said, you know, some of these funds were dependent on the governor agreeing to fund it, and he did that. Right, that was right off the bat. He said, right. going to release." So he said, these "We're going to do this piece," and mm-hmm. then, you know, then there was some drama about other things that were discretionary funds in the budget that had a different outcome. But on right. this piece, he judged it was affordable. His colleagues in the Republican Party within the legislature, by and large, they judged it was affordable. So the first pieces were more or less a consensus. 
consensus. The rest, we don't know yet. Yeah, so this is all good, but down the road, we'll have to see, I think, is basically the, the stance the governor has taken and some of his uh, Republican colleagues in, in the General Assembly. Michael, you mentioned the funding formula work group. So this is a work group that is designed to make recommendations to the Kerwin Commission, essentially how these recommendations will be phased in, what the split will be between the state and the locals, and how this all plays out. That's the essential goal of this group. They've held two meetings now, Michael. They'll meet again this week. So far, most of the discussion is centered around the commission's work over the past few years, as well as a review of really an out-of-date report now that uh, the state had hired some education consultants to come up with recommended changes to our public school system. They've gone over all of that. But in the last yeah. meeting, they did get into a few interesting items. I, th- I think that's that's fair. Part of this is, is necessitated by... The, the Kerwin Commission itself basically announced we're going to build a special work group to get into these financing formulas. Right. And that's I mean, that, it's a bit of a stutter step for their effort. They've had this 25-member commission looking at these education goals, and along the way, they've mostly – come up short of doing the analysis of how do we how do we identify these things how do we fund them how does it all how do how does that vary from what we do today at least the quantitative analysis right, right? so we i mean you know folks like us we have we have had this long running joke that the Kerwin commission with their 25 members and all these different interest groups represented they they've been really good at generating paragraphs of words but not very good at coming up with sideways sheets of papers where, you know, we're we're used to having that sheet that shows, all right, here's the 24 jurisdictions. Those are the school boards. They're funding from the county. They're funding from the state. Here's where we are today. Here's where we would be be tomorrow. Here are the winners. Here are the losers and so forth. I mean, that's the stuff that most people who are thinking about school funding are used to looking for. And I, that's me. Like I, I yes. look at these reports and I, I flip through and I immediately, where do I turn the page sideways? That's what I want to see. I've been wanting until now because yes. now the, you know, the staff presentations and the expert presentations to this work group have substantially been about, okay, let's look at how we do things now. These are some policy options for how you can change. I mean, we can, we can walk through mm-hmm. briefly some of the things that they've been getting into. So far, no giant shocks to us. No giant shocks. And you're starting to see those sideways sheets of paper. Of course, the, the big question still remains, wh- what is going to be the split? How are each county going to, to fare when all these recommendations are phased in, but they have gotten into a few items. And Michael, during the last meeting, again, we started to see those sideways sheets. And this is stuff that we have talked about. There are no big surprises here. So on local wealth, it seems like the goal here is to eliminate all of these add-on grants. So you have your base formula, and then there are some grants that are on top for some special circumstances. And I think we've seen this before. Yeah. So this this is very reminiscent of what the state went through with the Thornton Commission back around the year 2000. The last time the state did a really hard look at education funding. Superintendent uh, Alvin Thornton was the chair of that commission. These things tend to get named after their chairs. And so we still talk about Thornton funding up until today. And Dr. Thornton, <laughs> he, he is on He's this now a member group. of this work yeah, group. So, right? so a lot of knowledge there yeah, for sure. So, um, but uh, when, when the Thornton commission was looking at things, it was a big mantra of theirs was we have too many moving parts, these little baskets of money. What we should do is consolidate, make a big workhorse program, and then 
ask each school district, you come up with your education plan. Right. That's the way we'll have accountability is, you know, we'll bundle this money together, not have it in lots of little pockets and, you know, tell us that you use this dollar for this and that dollar for that. But rather, what's your overall mission? What are you trying to accomplish and what are you doing to get there? Right. And, here's, some of the red and tape. here's the big bundle to make all that stuff happen. That mm-hmm. was a that was a big theme of Thornton. What has happened in the in the years since is these, this happens all the time. I don't, I don't mean this as criticism. It's just an observation, the political process. You get a few years in and then suddenly, you know, maybe we're not using the right inflation number. Maybe we ought to recalibrate right, that. Right. Uh, suddenly you have a, a problem with the economy and you say, you know what? We should do this instead of that. We'll cap this number. We'll create these boundaries. Oh, there's, there's a declining enrollment problem in some places. Well, let's do these special add on mm-hmm, grants. Mm-hmm. Uh, along the way, the state decided to shift a bunch of costs of teacher pensions onto jurisdictions. There was a special, well, let's give some of the jurisdictions some help in getting there. Right. Okay. So, so you end up with a bunch of, you know, sort of nicks and dents and scrapes, and then you you patch over with a little paint here, a little Bondo there. So your car goes from shiny and new to a little bit worn and a little bit used and so forth. But, I mean, it still gets you there, and that's, mm-hmm. that's more or less where we are today. So, yeah, declining enrollment is one of these add-on grants. And, you know, when you have declining enrollment, obviously that affects your ability to, to come up with the money that you need. You have fixed and variable costs. We've talked right. about this before. Right, but right? it's but it's tough optics, Absolutely, though. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've run into in the last few years with, with this governor and with the legislature is if you have a jurisdiction where the actual number of kids is declining by a percent mm-hmm. or a half of a percent, you're – your your green eye shade person would say, well, obviously you should just you know, decrease funding commensurate with the fewer number of kids. The real okay, that's fine. You may not serve as many school lunches. Right. You may not need to buy as many microscopes, or you can you can buy a few fewer textbooks. But the reality is, whether you whether you know whether Spanish class has twenty three kids or twenty one kids, you still need a teacher at the front of that class. You still need school one one point zero teacher right right right. right. So so, but I mean, so not everything is scalable mm-hmm. perfectly to your overall population. Right. So, I mean, that's a weird thing. Um, so what's happened? The state has made a political judgment saying declining, you know, having, having the state contribution come down in dollars from year to year is tough, mm-hmm. even when there are, even when there's a click down in the number of students. So we do hold harmless grants. We've done these special carve outs one year at a time, a couple years at a time. The governor has shown up with some special grants in the last few years. So it's become kind of a routine. Mm-hmm. One of the things that a commission like this does is say, okay, let's try and come up with a new formula that'll accommodate those situations more reasonably so we don't have to patch them over. Yeah. And we've talked about this and, and it seems like, I mean, no surprise here that this commission, this work group, I think is going to recommend a rolling three-year average of enrollment. Smooth it out. Smooth right. It out, right? Mm-hmm. Another another fix, maybe um, how we calculate wealth. When you look at income and you look at tax data, whether you use September data or November data, right. smooth is, that out. That so was another is, it's add-on. A, it's a technical issue right. that shows up because of a federal policy change that happened in the middle of the Thornton lifetime. We've kind of papered over that problem for the moment, but now that we're going to rewrite all the formulas anyway, you 
fix that, you build it in, you know, and that, I think that's everybody's expectation that's going to get worked in to the new formula and you right. won't have, you won't have this extra column of numbers. What the heck is that? Well, that was the deal from the whole you know, 2011. No, no, it's too much. Too much. All right. <laughs> One thing I do want to mention, and I think we've talked about this before, I know, but I want to reiterate it as many times as I can. And when we talk about how you calculate local wealth, and this is, you know, to put it simply, it's, it's a property and income wealth per county. I, I want to say that if anyone is expecting this group to recommend a major shift in how the state calculates local wealth when it comes to property versus income, I think you want to curb your enthusiasm. Great show, by the way, oh, yeah. but but please, <laughs> please don't think this is going to be some monumental shift. I right. think we've talked about what DLS has said before. Again, smooth it out, make it a little more of the, the 60-40 split that they want for property to income wealth. So smooth out right. the rough edges, but this is not going to be some monumental shift. And there are certainly some jurisdictions where, you know, they they could make a case, I think, that, you know, their property values are weighted too heavily. And they, right. these are, you know, Ocean City and up in Garrett County, you have Deep Creek Lake. But mm-hmm. for those folks and for anyone else expecting a huge shift, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, no, no reason to expect a total revolution here. It's going to be more evolution. And all signs are pointing that way. So while we're in the midst of making guesses, we're reading the body language of this group. And some of that shows up in the form of the presentations that the staff and the expert witnesses bring to a commission like this. Mm-hmm. So their, their work group is looking at formulas and so forth. They hear, here's how it works today. And if you wanted to make changes, you could do A, you could do B and so forth. After you've after you've attended a few of these meetings, you sort of understand this weird dance that goes on. And I'm I'm very confident we are reading this correctly. Yeah, I, that yes. that if you're Worcester County and you feel like you're being treated totally unfairly, and what you're hoping for is a rabbit coming out of the hat that's going to make things much different and to your much more to your liking. Right. I don't think there's going to be a gigantic change. I think the the arithmetic of the tax base, the property tax base in a place like Worcester County is just such that you can't math your way out of this. They mm-hmm. may reshuffle the deck and reweight things one way or another, but it's going to be incremental, not an, not an overhaul. Right. And then one other item here, Michael, we've talked about this was, I, I mentioned an outdated report from education consultants that was done a few years ago. They had recommended a multiplicative approach, and we don't have to get deep right. into this because it's not going to happen, but but just explain what that was a little bit and why why it doesn't make sense. I mean, the, the consultants came up with this idea of rather than adding the two numbers together, your property wealth and your income wealth in some fashion, which is what we do now. Right. Uh, instead, you could take those two, sort of index them and give everybody a number relative to one. A wealthy county would be a 1.2 and a poor county would be a 0.8. And then you'd somehow multiply the two numbers together. And I, I mean, I think that may that may drive a policy outcome that some people would find attractive. Sure. It may, exaggerates the state's efforts to offset local wealth disparities, but it, it just doesn't hold water arithmetically. And Brett Kerwin's a math guy. <laughs> Among other things, his background is in math. Right. So, so you know, he caught onto the scent very quickly himself and just sort of said, I can't find any way, any intellectual way to, to, to justify that concept. So that looks like it's shelved. And again, we, we felt that was common, you know, m- yeah, several weeks ago when we talked about this. Um, so I think, I think that idea is set aside. They may change this from being a, a, a waiting, a two to one waiting to a 50, 50 or a 60. 
60-40 or something else along those lines. But the the likelihood of this being a dramatically different system, I think, is is out the window. So again, we're still waiting on the, the big the big sheet of paper that you can look at sideways and see how individual counties will be affected by the blueprint right. and by the commission's recommendations. But, you know, I think now we're going to start to see them roll up their sleeves and get to that work so they can produce that information. Right. They've laid the groundwork. And I think I think what also is on deck for them. There's there's a lot of not very subtle arrows pointing in the direction of changing the timetables for the phase-ins. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this too, that when you looked at the recommendations from the Kerwin Commission, the full group so far, right. they keep saying it's a 10-year phase-in and folks like us you look at the bottom line and the the 10th year number is 3.8 billion but year 4 is like 3.2 or 3.3 right. 3. you're almost all the way there in the first 3 or 4 years it's front loaded it's, for sure it's not really a 10 year phase in the general assembly seems to have called them on this and said we think a more measured phase in is the way that this can be doable mm-hmm. we think that was one of the most important takeaways from this year's session there was there was language in this year's bill which was about that temporary funding, the jumpstart funding. That was easy to miss. But also, yeah, in the back of the bill, you know, nerds like us who actually read page 11 or page 41 or whatever it is, we find this little section and like, I think that's a maypole issue. And that's what this group is going to be circling around for the next few weeks. They're going to be talking about, okay, this piece, maybe instead of being years one through three, maybe it'll be years three through seven. And this piece will be on the back end of this 10 years. And lo and behold, oh, now we get to three point. Eight billion in a more even and measured fashion. Right. Because if you want this to work, which they, of course they do, then you, you want to do it in a way that can work. So making it a true 10 year or whatever, how many year phase in that it is seems to right. make a lot of sense. Now, 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 whether that gets you out of, is this a conversation about revenues? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, certainly there's a political triangulation to say, maybe we can make an aggressive multi-year education commitment without having you know, having a funding source that funds it will just say we're just going to make this the first thing we do with each new budget so right. in 22 and 23 and 24 and 25 each year is going to be one more installment of this but you know there's growth in the budget every year we just do this first and then everybody else fends for the rest that seems to be the framework um does it leave the, the, the commission and the legislature open to criticism saying, you know, down the road, this is going to ultimately mean we're going to have to raise taxes. We're going to have to find new revenues. I, I don't know if this resolves that issue, but I think that's on their minds. Yes, absolutely. Trying to make it more palatable. Speaking of Dr. Kerwin and this funding work group at the upcoming MAKO Summer Conference, August 14th through the 17th in Ocean City, we will have a full session featuring Dr. Kerwin himself, also uh, Craig Rice, chair of the MAKO Education Subcommittee and council member in Montgomery County. He's a member of the Kerwin Commission. And Dr. Karen Salmon, the state superintendent of schools, of course, she's also on the Kerwin Commission. They will have a, a general session at the conference. You'll be able to talk to them, ask them questions. This is the Changing Face of Education. It's going to take place Thursday, August 15th from 1245 to 145. And I'm looking forward to it. Standing room only. Guaranteed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll be a big room. All right. There, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the state's fiscal report card, and we will get into what you should be listening to, at least what we think you should be listening to, all that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, this week we got the state's fiscal report card. And of course, we were talking about the three major credit rating agencies. The state retained its AAA bond rating from all three agencies, Michael. And this is just before the state is set to sell about $550 million in bonds. So uh, the the triple, triple, the triple, triple, triple A is the highest rating for each of the three major, major rating agencies. Mm-hmm. And Maryland is one of, now it's a handful of states. That number has grown a little bit, but uh, we're among, among a handful of states that get the top rating from all three of the agencies. So this is, I mean, this is sort of, I don't know, it's kind of a pilgrimage that you make when you're in public finance. You, you you go up to Wall Street and you spend time with Standard and Poor's and with Fitch and with Moody's, these three companies, and they've got all their, you know, their people with their stacks of papers and so forth. And you pitch to them, here's what, here's what we're planning to do. This is our fiscal plan. They they needle you about this or that and so forth. And then they render judgment that like we called it a fiscal, you know, fiscal report card. It really feels that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they use like an ABC style system that every Everybody understands. That's on purpose, right? Uh, absolutely on purpose. So, so we get AAA from everybody, and what that nominally means is, if you're an investor and you're looking to in, to to invest in bonds from a public entity, mm-hmm. that. Uh, Maryland is a good risk, right. that the likelihood of them making good on their commitment that you're going to get back your principal and interest of the money you lent to them is really high. And therefore, the flip side means that I don't really need a lot of interest because I know this is a safe investment. So I'm getting tax-free interest back to our whole talk about municipal bonds mm-hmm. and being mm-hmm. out of this tax, you know, tax revolution and so forth. Um, I'm going to get a relatively low stream of interest, but I don't need a lot of interest because this is a safe investment. Because I don't need to worry about it. Right. Some states you, you would want a lot of interest, but we won't go there. So Maryland is one of 12 states actually with the, the triple, triple. So the triple, triple A rating. And Michael, when we talk about five, $550 million. These are general obligation bonds. These are bonds that are used for important infrastructure projects, right? So absolutely. I mean, the state the state has a capital budget every year, and we know the kind of stuff that the state is investing in. These are, I mean, usually the biggest line item every single year is public schools. Right. So a school project is always number one on the list. So obviously we're interested there. Sure. sure. But, but it's also, you know, state facilities, things that are on campus, mm-hmm. um, you know, jail, and libraries and you know the the whole gamut of public facilities general obligation bonds is the most vanilla but this is the state of Maryland pledging its full faith and credit we'll we'll do whatever we have to in order to pay off these bonds and the interest and the principal you'll be taken care of right. we guarantee it with all we've got it's a little different from revenue bonds where sometimes you'll say we have a particular revenue source and we'll pledge the money from that but you know if that revenue source isn't doesn't show up then you might be on your own that's a higher risk enterprise General obligation is the full faith and credit. You'll be taken care of. And, and you mentioned this is important. The, the, the triple, triple is important because obviously lower interest rates means the state saves money when it you know buys this money to, to invest in these important infrastructure projects. But yeah. that, that's above the line, Michael. What, right. what else is what else can we look into here? Why is this so important from maybe your perspective? Yeah, I, mean, it's, I mean, superficially, you're right. 
that, okay, you know, a $550 million bond issue, uh, the, the interest rate you have to pay people to give you the cash for those bonds. I mean, mm-hmm. that's basically what the, what the state is doing is saying, we want the cash to do stuff now. We'll pay you back over time with interest. How much interest does it require for you to give us the cash? Right. And if you show up with a great report card and you say, look what Moody said, they think we're awesome, then you say, I'll do it for a low rate. But like the difference between 2% and 2.5% on a half billion dollars of bonds stretching out over 15 years, that's a lot of carrying costs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the... The the by the book answer to why does the credit rating matter is it saves you money in borrowing costs. So okay. that's number one. But I think the more interesting side of this is I'm really fond of how the simple is more important than the complex. And things like carrying costs and basis points and negotiated sales and stuff is too complicated for most people to fathom. Mm-hmm. But voters and citizens and people who read newspapers, you know what they can understand? They can understand a report card with things like A's, B's, and C's. Exactly. So it's great being a leader in Maryland, whether you're the governor, the comptroller, treasurer, all the people who are in charge of fiscal decision-making and political leaders in the state. You love being able to say, we are guardians of our AAA bond rating. Mm -hmm. And AAA... That's great. Everybody right? knows what that's that the means. best. That's the best there is. And we're the top of the heap. Our fiscal house is um, in order. Right. right. So, so, I mean, this has, this has a, uh, its own gravity on beyond just whatever incremental costs we would be bearing. You know, if, if something were to happen in the Maryland economy and we got downgraded and our interest costs went up, it wouldn't be the end of the world. We might have to pay a little more interest to people when we borrow money to build schools and, mm-hmm. and jails and so forth. But, you know, life would go on, but that would be a headline, right? It would be a headline saying, yeah, somebody has rendered judgment and it's a thumbs down on Maryland. You stink. And nobody wants that, right? Politically, especially. Right. right? So, so, I mean, this is as close as we have to a political sacred cow in Maryland. We do a great job. We're the top of the heap and we're going to stay there. No, no right-minded governor or fiscal steward wants to be, hey, on my watch is when we're going to get downgraded a single A and have to pay more on our bonds. Because it's just, it, it, the story writes itself. It's a black eye for sure. Right. So, um, and I think you can make an argument that this is a healthy thing. That people need something simple to, to grab onto. So the aggregate things that get you a AAA are you have a process for raising revenue if you need it. Mm-hmm. You have a process for cutting the budget if things are out of control. You know, we have a mid-cycle thing where the Board of Public Works can go into a budget mm-hmm. that's already been passed and they can make cuts to it on the fly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the counties don't like that because sometimes we get nicked there. Right. But the bond houses like that. They like that we are nimble and able to solve fiscal problems. We have structures that help. We have a, a property tax rate that's set by the Board of Public Works rather than the General Assembly. Exactly. So, I mean, we do a bunch of things that they say are good fiscal decision making. And I don't know, in the aggregate, the idea of 
fine, let's have the bean counters up on Wall Street, do that analysis. They bring their, you know, foot and a half tall stacks of paper and they ask all these tough questions. When they render a thumbs up on a place like Maryland as a bondholder, I'm assured, but also as a citizen, I, I derive some sense of, okay, they are doing a good job. That's a good thing. Gives you some confidence in your government. And, and I also think this is significant because all three agencies in their report, in their in their ratings, noted that you know, we've been talking about this major commitment to education, the blueprint, the Kerwin Commission. This is it's a massive, massive commitment at the state and the local level. We also have heard big and bold plans for school construction. Right. Bottom line, this is all big, big, big money down the line. But these rating agencies, they, they acknowledge that, but they say Maryland has a good track record of, a, of keeping their fiscal house in order. We think they can right. handle that. So I think that's pretty significant. Right. I mean, I mean, I think being fiscally responsible is in the eye of the beholder. And people can have a political debate about whether the amount that we raise in revenue or that we spend through the budget process is the right amount. And I mean, that's, that, that's an open question for people to debate whether we're doing things, whether we're making the right decisions. Sure. And that depends on the lens that you're looking yeah, through. Sure. Of course, right. right? Exa- exactly. But I think. When when a third party looks at Maryland and says, you're going about this the right way, you have a process like a spending affordability committee mm-hmm. that every year makes recommendations and year after year you follow them. Uh, you have a multi-year look at your debt capacity and you have limits that you stay within. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these sorts of things are reassuring to a bond house that this is an unlikely place for the state of Maryland to just suddenly up and turn its back on bondholders and say, you know what? You you're out of luck. We don't feel like paying you guys off. So all in all, a really good report card there. So to say, Maryland can go home and hang that on the fridge. Right. And, right. and right. Yeah. Stick it on the <laughs> fridge. But like, okay. So, so hats off to, to the executive branch, to the fiscal leaders and to the general assembly leaders that, you know, you, you basically have done the things that keep us in that top tier. Good job. Okay. So let's get into a, a fun segment here, Michael. Well, you and I, we listen to a lot of podcasts, and let's talk about what we think folks should be listening to, of course, after they listen to the latest episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. We figure that's, that's I'm sure, number first one. on everybody's list, right? Yeah, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So you were talking so you to want, me. So you want to talk about, po- we're not talking about like Lizzo and stuff, we're going to talk, you know. No. Yeah, you know, well, all the weird stuff that we listen to, we won't, we won't subject our <laughs> listeners to, but... Uh, you and I were talking about Ezra Klein, and he has a great podcast, and he went on a riff uh, about a week ago, I guess. And this is – it's funny because right. it's it's on a subject that we have discussed a long time ago, I feel like, but now it's something that everybody seems right. to be talking about. Well, we're, I mean, so our our lane is state and local policy and politics, and we're, you know, we're in Maryland, and we do local government stuff, but we're talking about the state budget and state policy most of the time. So – we're we're on sort of a state house beat, and I think I and mean, I want to talk about some of the other people who are covering the same universe yeah, that we are. Absolutely. But I did find it really interesting. Uh, Ezra Klein is one of the, one of the guys who founded Vox, and they're doing this whole media thing, and it's it's political and analysis and all that kind of, and that sort of stuff. And I mean, he's a world class navel gazer and that sort of thing. Yeah. But but he, interesting he, guy. He has a sure. variety of guests on his show, and a couple of weeks ago, George. George Will, uh, who's, you know, absolute legendary conservative thinker and writer, um, comes on Ezra's show. And so I, I, I listen to this sporadically, but I see George Will on there. I'm like, okay, I'm circling this that. This is not going to be a one night when I'm falling asleep. Right. I'll listen to what I can and drift off. This right. is a make a point to listen to it. So 
George Will, first of all, just speaks in these beautifully polished paragraphs and can rip off a 30-word quote from somebody from centuries ago without even flexing a muscle. He's, right. he's got a certain skill that's that's quite something. And then you get him started on baseball. It's a whole different thing. Oh, but, boy. Yeah. But, but he did make an observation, and the two of them really agreed, which was right in our wheelhouse, and that is – at the federal level, and, and both Ezra and George Will are mostly focused on federal politics, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but at the federal level, if you've got stagnation and gridlock and the inability of the Congress and the executive branch to come to broad agreements on what to do with policy, mm-hmm. they both totally buoyed an argument we've been making, which is the the star of the show right now are the state houses. Absolutely. It's state legislatures and to some degree local governments are the ones who are affecting policy that really historically would have been happening at the federal level. Yeah, we're picking up the pieces because of inaction at the federal level and you really don't have a choice. The states don't have a choice. They need to act on some of this stuff that's that's in the pipeline and that's happening now because Congress cannot get its act together. I think you're starting to hear this a lot. And, and of course you are because it gets worse and worse as we, as we move along, right? It's, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And I mean, the way we're saying it is kind of with a little bit of disdain for, for the lack of Washington being able to do stuff. A little bit. Well, some people would say that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think Washington, I think George Will is one of these sure. people who would say, I don't want Washington making a lot of decisions. By and large, they make bad decisions. So, Hey, better that it's a local thing. You know, if you're Milton Friedman, you probably would say, I want the lowest level of government possible so I can escape bad policy. I can move to the place next door. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, logically there's, there's, there's an argument there, but just as an observer, whether this is a good or a bad thing, there's little doubt that a great deal of what might otherwise have been federal policy and the big things that affect people day to day are happening at the state level. You're seeing like the debate about minimum wage. Right. Perfect example. Maryland's one of now it's a dozen or so states that have gone all the way to a $15 minimum wage. The, the federal government has been stuck at $7.25. Again, whether it's a good or a bad thing, different people are going to have different points of view. But the idea of states really roaring ahead of the federal government on this is a relatively new phenomenon. Now it's pretty common. It's more or less an expectation in lots of places. Well, how much more are you going to do than the feds? Because, you know, if if Alabama and Mississippi and Kentucky are controlling federal policy on labor stuff, then our state's going to do different. So we're Oregon or we're Massachusetts, we're Maryland, we're going to do something different. Let's get into some of the, the local podcasts around Maryland that cover the General Assembly, cover politics, and just a wide range of issues. Number one, depending on what side you're on, you have Red Maryland and you have Elevate Maryland. And um, these are two really, really good podcasts. They do have different perspectives, but I think it's good to mention those two together. I think, I mean, honestly, I think... If you're trying to follow policy, I mean, if you're following Maryland policy and politics, right. you owe it to yourself to listen to everything. You mm-hmm. should be an omnivore. And all perspectives. Right. So I, I, I think that's it's a healthy thing. And that's fine. You have d- different folks are going to have a different take on substance. And like, if you're red Maryland, you wear it right. You're, it's right on your sleeve where you're coming from. And you are entitled to a point of view that a conservative angle or a Republican angle on this topic and walk people through it, explain why this is a good idea or a bad idea and why Maryland should be doing things differently. Absolutely. And 
if that if that is your cup of tea, I think they're covering stuff that you're going to find interesting. Mm-hmm. If it's not your cup of tea, I think it's still interesting to hear that point of view. So I think everybody should be listening to that. Um, Elevate Maryland isn't exactly like uh, they don't call themselves Blue Maryland, right? But I mean, this is this is centered in Howard County. I think they would embrace that they've got uh, a progressive tinge to their point of view mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. I mean that that matches their community and and they've staked out a lane. Um, I'll tell you what I wouldn't give for Tom Cole's radio voice. Oh my <laughs> gosh, I know. <laughs> so, but I mean, yeah, but but Tom and Candace do. Candace is great a, a, too. They do a really good job in bringing in policymakers mm-hmm. and talking beyond level one. Like mm-hmm. everybody can do the five minute interview where tell us about your big bill, what are you looking forward to, and that kind of stuff. And then you close the door and you didn't really learn anything, but you had a featured speaker. They bring them in, talk through a bunch of stuff. Then it's into like, you know, what, what's the last book you read and all this right, kind of stuff. Right. I, I mean, I like that side of things too, but I think their stuff is worth listening to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Roughly I mean, speaking from the Baltimore sun is another really good one. Of course right. the sun has a reputation, but, right. but this is a good podcast. Right. Too. I mean, and, and, but the, the, I mean, the sun is an enormously important political organ in the state. Mm-hmm. They've got resources they can draw on. So they've got excellent reporters. They've got people who have been in the field covering covering important issues in public safety or right. education or civic issues in and around Baltimore. Some of it's going to be centered on the sun. They've, you know, they've built out a segment uh, with, with Luke Broadwater and Malia Cromer um, talking about the general assembly and Maryland politics. And, and those are can't miss episodes yeah, if you're really this good. kind of thing. So, I mean, I think it's a no brainer that, that these things are, are fired up. This is a growing area and the sun is, they look like they're committed to this. I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And then of course we have, our friends at Ion Annapolis and Maryland Crabs, those guys are really, really good. Ion Annapolis is sort of a, a daily news update focused on Annapolis and yeah. Anne Arundel County. And Maryland Crabs, I mean, you have all sorts of stories. You have all kinds of guests. And it, it's really, really right. good content. So, I mean, that wanders into policy and politics sometime, but it's broader than that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it'll be just about, you know, local restaurant scene or let's talk about who had the best, you know, the best fireworks. Craft or, beer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, get into that sort I of like stuff. Those. So, so I mean, but they're covering a lot of different things and, you know, they're, there's a Venn diagram between the kind of stuff that we're doing and the kind of stuff that they're doing. And there might be a relatively narrow little oval in the middle, but I don't know. I, I mean, if you're into Maryland policy and politics, the Maryland culture is part of that too. You ought to be soaking this sort of stuff up. You know, this, the guy, you know, Ryan Miller doing his, his, his podcast. We sat in on one section where uh, after the Taw's crab feast. And I think, um, you know, they're doing a good, they're doing a good coverage. And that's, you know, that's kind of hard to chart politically, right. but he, He's doing a mix of policy and politics. Um, Len Foxwell joins that, that all the time. And, I mean, that's a guy you can listen to for oh a long gosh. time who's got a zillion stories, too. Smart guy. So that's good. Len from the Comptroller's Office, of course. And then let's give some counties some shout-outs here, Michael. We've had... Charles County, who I think was in the room at last year's Mako Summer Conference when we did a live recording and we sort of explained how we started this and they were really interested. They right. have their podcast up and running now, Charles County Unscripted. Un- yeah, Unscripted. It's- and Baltimore County also has a new podcast called The County. And right. the county executive, Olszewski, is on there pretty regularly. Two great podcasts at the county level. If you're looking for county-specific stuff, those are those are really good, really quality content. Well, I think what's happening is media is – 
you, you always have to get a balance of push and pull. Absolutely. So you yeah. can publish stuff and hope people come find it and pull it down, but you can push things out in a different medium and you'll reach a different group of people. Mm -hmm. That's what we've found here. Um, Mako has long been trying to be a news source on things that are relevant to the counties, but also in the state budget, in the state legislature and so forth. So if you read the Conduit Street blog for the last decade, we've been trying to cover all those sorts of things. Launching the podcast, we thought was a way to complement that, stay timely and and do things in a different way. Um, I don't think we would have guessed that we'd end up with a thousand downloads a week yep. and that we'd have this kind for of following, sure. no. but, th but that's fine. Like there's, it, it says that there's an appetite for this kind of thing. And um, no problem at all sharing that lane with all the people who are trying to make a go of this, either as a compliment to what they're already doing or as a business idea. I mean, all of the above. I mean, we're not, we're not selling toothbrushes and mattresses quite yet. Not yet. I mean, we're not, we're not, we're not ruling that out, but, but nonetheless, you I mean, know. You know, so, I mean, I, this is a great compliment to the Mako mission. I think the Baltimore Sun sees it the same way. I think these community-based and politically-based podcasts are doing the same sort of thing. You round up the whole thing. The, I mean, there should be a healthy dialogue going on. And if this is one of the formats for that, okay, you know, get people on their treadmill. That's great. Yeah, and our counterparts in uh, Virginia and North Carolina also have podcasts at the state association level. Those are worth the listen if you're into Virginia or North Carolina politics. And at, right? at least, but I mean, at, at least half of their content, just like us, like from time to time, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the stuff we've talked about here in Maryland right. and I'll send it to friends who I know are dealing with Uber or who are, who are facing the small cell debate mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. micro towers and so forth. And I'll say, by the way, you might want to listen to this because even though it's a Maryland discussion, these are global issues. Same stuff. When I listen to the, the North Carolina podcast, the Virginia podcast, at least half of their content, it's the same stuff up here. Right. right. We can plug it in here. And then Anne Arundel Economic Development Corporation, I've noticed them recently putting out more and more content and their podcast, which is also very good. They go around to local businesses. So that's a really good one as well. Good content, good local business. And uh, it's just a, it's a, it's a pleasure to listen to that one as well. I think it's, I think it's a great genre. It's growing. That's a good thing. And people who are into this stuff are only going to benefit as this continues to boom. Absolutely. And we have to mention the daily. I think it's one of our favorite. That's how, from the New York Times is every morning and it's always uh, really good content. I think we aspire to be as good as the daily. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we will go ahead and leave it there. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, subscribe. It really helps to get our message out. We hope to see all of you in Ocean City for our upcoming summer conference, August 14th through the 17th. But until next week, Michael and Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.